Humans are creatures of habit who crave control in sometimes uncontrollable circumstances. In this episode, operate with Zen regular Angie Smith, who's a professor of urology at UNC Chapel Hill, and I discuss control in a variety of surgical settings. Control in the operating room, control in patient encounters outside of the OR, control over how we structure our lives and how we achieve balance. Parallels are drawn to illness uncertainty for patients and the conversation weaved through vacations, Nietzsche, mirror neurons, and fear. Hope you enjoy. My name is Phil Parazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I have struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Operate with Zen. Today, we have the great pleasure of our wonderful repeat guest, Dr. Angela Smith. Angie, introduce yourself to the audience in case they haven't heard from you. Yeah. Hi, Phil. Um, it's Angie Smith. I am a urologist at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm a urologic oncologist. Uh, and um, as you know, and hopefully uh, the guests will uh, at least figure out if they haven't heard from me before, I'm really a big proponent of um, work-life integration and really thinking through um, the choices we make and um, what we do to improve our lives in medicine. So um, it's really wonderful to be here and uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Good. Well, we're glad to have you and you're definitely one of the fan favorites as we uh, look through how the podcast is doing. So I think everyone appreciates your really practical advice. And today we'll get into the practical. Well, we're going to start with a little bit of the abstract and talking a little bit about concepts of control, self-control. So why don't you get us started? Talk to us about how kind of concepts of control work in our everyday lives to our advantage or disadvantage. Yeah. First of all, I just love this topic about control because, um, you know, we're all surgeons and what surgeon doesn't like control. Uh, I mean, I think that's part and parcel of why we choose surgery. We like to um, be able to control an outcome and what better way to use a knife to do that. I mean, I, I, I think that um, what, what can be challenging with control is that the reality is we don't actually have it. Um, we can try to set up our circumstances such that we um, feel like we have more control. Um, but in the truth, the truth of the matter is that, you know, on a very high level, the only thing we actually have control over is our actions, what we choose to do, how we choose to respond. But everything outside of that is actually outside of our control. And it's hard to accept that. Um, but I think, you know, in the conversation we have today, we can talk a little bit about some specifics um, about how we feel about control, um, what we can do to control that one thing we can, which is ourselves, and then how it all works together. Because I do think that the idea of control is um, really important to how we live our lives. Um, oftentimes, like how happy we are, how unhappy we are, um, a lot of the emotions we feel really leads back to that sense of control. Yeah. And I think it's just a great, great opportunity to bring in kind of some of our philosophy on this and kind of what some of the philosophical literature says. Uh, you know, I think it was Nietzsche or one of the great kind of Western philosophers that he was making an argument why we don't have free will. And I don't necessarily agree uh, with that sentiment, but the, the argument that there are so many variables in our life and in everything we do, that it's impossible to think we can control all of them and kind of, uh, and that certainly influences our next steps or what we're actually doing moment to moment. And part of the Buddhist or East, Eastern philosophy is giving up that sense of uh, control or that desire for control and understanding that 
everything's going to change. Everything's fluid. And this is a part of who we are and, and a part of how we exist. And I think that's, you know, I think very appropriate to, to what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a topic that we can probably talk about for, you know, endless amount of time, but I think having some specifics can um, hopefully leave listeners with something to take away and to apply. And I always say, you know, whenever we have these kinds of conversations, it's all about experimentation and how, you know, the topic lands for you. It might land differently today um, than it will five, 10 years from now, but kind of coming back and revisiting the thoughts, um, I think, really, um, at least have served me well. Yeah. So let's start with really concrete. Let's start in the operating room, um, (laughs) control and out of control. And, you know, how do you think about, you know, how do you think about the operating room and and being a surgeon? Yeah, it's funny. I I forgot we were talking about control until this morning. And, uh, but yesterday I was in the operating room and I was talking about control (laughs) with, um, with my team. And I was also thinking about it because I had a really challenging case and, um, I don't know. I'm sure many of the listeners have been there where you're like, I, I hope that I can, I can actually finish the job here today. (laughs) And, you know, and, and that's a, it's a scary thought. It's, it's that feeling of lack of control that um, sort of creeps into your mind uh, whenever a case is, is very challenging. Um, What I was talking about with my, my team is that, um, is that even though, and I, I like to actually communicate how I'm feeling. Um, I think it's healthy. Um, it's healthy for me. I think it's healthy for them to hear. Um, but, uh, you know, I told them, I was like, yeah, this is challenging. You know, <laughs> this is, this is hard. And, um, and I told them, you know, when I feel that way, I often tell myself a couple things. One, I felt this way before and I was able to get through it. Um, that's helpful. And the second thing is that when I'm feeling this way, um, I, I often like to check my own emotions and and, and remember that staying positive um, has served me well in the past. And so, uh, you know, so it was actually, despite all of its challenges, I had a, a pretty fun day. And I, I would say like the, the rest of the team did too. We you know, have conversations, we, um, you know, communicate how we're feeling. We try to like, you know, bring in any kind of levity um, to the situation. That's where the control lies. Um, you know, I could, I could have chosen and I have in the past, I'll be honest with you, I could have chosen to focus on the negative to focus on the fact that this case was going longer, several aspects of the case were more challenging than I expected. Um, But rather than do that, um, I chose to, you know, to, you know, have more of a levity to the OR atmosphere. Um, I think that kept everyone feeling more positive, more optimistic. And I felt better in the end. And that's, again, that's, it goes back to um, what you can do for your own response. You cannot, you know, we've talked about this before, Phil, but, you know, I cannot um, choose to have a, like, a, you know, some levity in the OR and then ensure that everyone's feeling good too. Never going to feel, never going to, never going to have that control, but I can do it for myself. And so if you come from a choice of doing these things to make yourself feel better, I honestly think the rest of it um, kind of comes and it might not, but in the end, it's all about how you're feeling. So I think that, uh, you know, again, this is high level, um, but in the OR, I try to create that atmosphere. Why? Because it makes me feel better. If I feel better, I tend to have a better OR experience and most people around me have a better experience too. Yeah. I think that's a great point. You know, it's, you have no control whether your nurse or your scrub tech or your assistants or whoever it may be, how they're feeling, what's going on in their life. But by setting the tone, setting the example, setting the intention to use a, a mindfulness terms of positivity uh, and laughter, as you said, uh, when appropriate, yeah. yep. it, it really does set the tone and it makes it okay for other people to feel that way too. So it, it, yeah. it certainly imparts that sense of sense of control. And then I, I want to actually add, um, Phil, because I, I mean, you know, probably listeners are thinking, okay, well, great atmosphere, but what about like the nitty gritty, <laughs> you know? And, but I want to be more specific on those types of things. So I do think about a lot of that. Um, and over time, I've changed what I've done to impart that feeling of control that I know reduces my anxiety. So a couple things I do. Um, one, uh, we know, I think a lot of hospitals right now, there are more traveling nurses, 
you don't always have the same team like we did. It was a luxury. I, I see that now. Um, and, and so I decided I could be frustrated with that. And I was frustrated for a long time. Like I just didn't know. Sometimes I would have to reinvent the wheel. Okay, we're doing a cystectomy here. I have to go everything again. But then I said, you know what? I could also just take some matters into my own hands here. And so I created a habit now. Um, I come a little earlier. It's not very much, maybe five to 10 minutes early. I always go into that OR. Um, you know, you kind of meet the patient. I, I always have that habit. I've had that for years. I like to see them, talk to them beforehand. It helps them, you know, feel confident. It helps me feel good too. But then I add it on, I go into the, you know, to the actual OR. Sometimes, you know, maybe people do that already. I, I, I wasn't doing that, um, at least not before the first time out. But now I do. And I go through the card. I walk through steps. Um, it, it sets a tone. That's the, the, the best thing about it. I think actually it sets the tone, you know, like I'm happy. They're happy. Like, here we are. What's your name? We do it even before the you know, time out before the patient walks in the room. I get like pumped for the day. So it's good for me. It's good for them because they, they have that opportunity to ask questions before everyone's in the room. Um, so that is a, a piece that has been vital. Um, even if it's someone I already know, and it is my team, I love seeing them. It's just sets that tone. And then they always have a question. They're like, you know, in this case, like this other case I was doing yesterday was unusual. It was a standard case, but it was a complex one. I was like, oh, actually we're going to need a couple more extra things. And here's why they feel like part of the team now. And also I don't have to worry about them knowing what I need. Like maybe I'll need a stapler today. I don't normally have one, just have that on hand. And here's why. Um, And so I think doing things like that can also impart a sense of control and create the atmosphere. And then the, the last thing I'll say is I try to anticipate. I, I make it a game for myself. You know, you got to know yourself. I love game, you know, gamification, but I make it a game like how many steps ahead can I run? You know, especially if I have a travel team. Um, I, I always go try three, four. It's like the wordle, you know, like, can you get it in two? Can you get it three? <laughs> but I, I love like um, saying, okay, you know, in about 30 minutes, I'm going to need this stapler. I'm going to need two loads, you know, and just kind of like, modeling that for trainees but also it's a game for myself and it it makes the day pass a little quicker and also it it reduces that you know time where you're waiting for equipment so um those are specifics that i i would say help me with my sense of control yeah i think those are all excellent and you know you and i end up talking a lot about habits uh when we get together and um once again another similarity i do the same exact thing i think it's really important to to meet and speak with the patient the morning and the day of surgery and everybody's going to have a different routine and different feelings about that and we'll talk about patient sense of control and illness uncertainty and those kinds of things later um but i do think that's an important part of reducing the patient's you know uh uncertainty and giving them a little more control in the day but i do the same thing after i consent I walk by the operating room and I talk to the team and I tell them what we're doing and I just check in with them and see how they're doing. And most of what I do is pretty standard on a day-to-day basis, but occasionally it's not. And it's just a chance to check in with them and say, Hey, listen, this is what we're doing today. I think it's going to be straightforward or I don't think it's going to be straightforward. What can I get for you? What do you need? You know? um, And I think it's a great way to just tell your team that you're there for them, whether you want to call it control or just being a good colleague. I think it's an important OR routine that really does help with uh, help with the team kind of atmosphere and working together. Agreed. Yeah. And then the the last thing I was going to say, you knew you brought up the travelers and how odd our ORs are now. And um, I was talking with my youngest daughter this weekend on the beach. And I know uh, our youngest are about the same age. And my youngest one was very upset because we were at the beach and this day she really didn't feel like getting that well wet and didn't feel like getting sand on herself. And so this was actually a pretty deep conversation for a five-year-old, but we sat there and we talked about, well, listen, if you're coming to the beach and you don't want to get sand and you don't want to get water on yourself, you're probably setting yourself up for a bad day. So if you just assume that you're going to get wet and you're going to get a little bit of sand on yourself, i.e. things aren't going to be perfect, you've set kind of proper expectations. And I've been working with a lot of colleagues on this. We see this now. I I have an amazing colleague who just wants clinic to run smoothly every day, patient to patient, every patient encounter. If they're eight to 830, that's when they should be in the room. And I said, you're setting yourself up and everybody else for failure by making that assumption, right? Or or setting the expectation that we're going to run like a, 
you know, like a uh, assembly line. We're not, this is medicine. This is people. Um, we're in a service industry. Things aren't going to be perfect. And if you set the expectation of perfection, doesn't mean not good service. We're giving great service. But if you set the expectation for for kind of perfection on a time standard, then it, it's a lot tougher to keep that control. Yeah, Phil, that is, um, I, I love the example, especially because I just got back from the beach and my husband was like, you will never live at a beach. Sand is, I'm with your daughter. I love the beach. I do not like sand, but, um, but uh, you know, it is deep. And I think that is so important because what you're basically saying is that the way that we think about our situation is going to create the experience we have, period. Um, and there are so many ways you can think about what you're about to enter, whether it's a clinic or a OR or whatever the case might be. And you always have the choice to think differently. It's hard to do in the moment, but if you practice it over time, just like anything, just like the OR, you get better. I, I was thinking about, um, I know we veer off topic a bit, but I, I think this is like such a great example. Um, I was in the clinic um, a couple of weeks ago and uh, it was one of those clinics that I looked ahead and I was like, wow, this clinic's gonna be so easy. It's going to be so easy. I this is the thought I had, right? And um, right away, uh, I, I, I came to, you know, I, I went to the clinic. Um, my nurse is out. You know, she's sick. And I have a new nurse who's never done clinic before. Like, she's never even done Epic before. And, you know, and, you know, what am I thinking? My day's ruined. That's what I thought. I thought I had the perfect day. Finally, you know, everything was perfect, you know. And, um, but because I practiced this change of thought, as soon as I thought that I was like, whoa, check myself, this day is going to be different, but I'm going to find a way to make it interesting. And, um, and that day, uh, we were doing a selfie challenge, you know, for the UNC, uh, where you're supposed to take a selfie of someone and tell, say why you appreciate them. And, you know, I thought, well, I couldn't have done this clinic if this, this new nurse, who had never done this and it's probably scary for her, didn't show up and do it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the selfie challenge with her. We took a selfie and I, I asked her, I was like, well, before we start, like, you know, no worries. Like it's going to, we're going to get through this today. You know, like no worries on that. You know, we'll figure it out because I could tell she's nervous. And, um, and then I was like, what, you know, tell me about yourself. Like we've never met, you know, or never really knew each other. And she told me the most poignant story. She was like in this, like, she was like this high level executive. I did not know that. She's like, yeah, I threw it all away because I, you know, I basically, I had this experience in the hospital. My son was really sick. It changed my life. I, I became a nurse. I had this second career, um, you know, gave up a six figure salary and all this and that. I had no idea. Any, I, I had like goosebumps hearing that story. It, it was the best day I've had in a very long time. But it's because at that moment, I changed my thought. And then that thought created a different action. And then boom, I had a great day, an even more perfect day than I had envisioned prior. So that is that control of my own reaction to a change in, you know, in, in events. And that's going to happen all the time in medicine and in life. So, uh, so I'm glad you brought it up because I think that's, that's critical. Yeah. And I, and at this point I'd be remiss if I don't bring up Victor Frankel, a man's search for meaning for any surgeon, any human being. I mean, this is a, a must read. It's a short book. It's an incredibly powerful read. Two parts. The first is his experience in the concentration camps of World War II. And the second part is his um, his uh, psychiatric philosophy and kind of his evolution from Freud, which basically says, you know, a lot of our distress in life comes from uncertainty or, or our inability to find meaning or search for meaning. But the most important thing he says is you can't... Con uh, or the punchline that everybody talks about, not necessarily the most important thing he says is, you know, we can't control our context. We can't control what's going on around us, but we have all of the control to, to determine how we react to that. And that it's an incredibly poignant um, point and it's an incredibly poignant book. So I, I think it's really uh, appropriate to what we're talking about today. And it was my beach read. Can you believe it? I read it four days ago. <laughs> oh, unbelievable, isn't I mean, it? I know. I know. It was a great book. I, 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 book. I couldn't believe I hadn't read it yet. It, it's, I highly recommend it. Yeah. So one other, um, you know, you brought up some really good OR points and, and things in the operating room. We talked about communication, um, being positive, giving yourself kind of prior examples um, uh, and 
and your habits of kind of addressing the owner and the team. A couple other things I wanted to bring up and just get your thoughts on this. You know, I do a lot of tough retroperitoneal cases and anybody knows upper retroperitoneal cases or even pelvic cases, bleeding is not uncommon. And one of the things that we certainly have control over a lot, many of the time, not all the time, is kind of the pace of that bleeding and stopping a case and slowing things down. And I think that's one of the most important lessons I try to impart on our trainees and help our our graduating residents and our junior faculty work with is you have control of the operating room. Most of the time you have control of the bleeding, slow things down, just put your hand mm-hmm. on things, put pressure on things, give the anesthesiologist time, communicate, slow things down and put yourself back in control rather than accelerating through a tough moment in the OR. And I think that's an incredibly important lesson. Absolutely. It's it's funny you bring that up because yesterday um, I said a, a saying in the OR um, that is exactly to this point. Um, it's, in, it's a Navy SEAL saying, um, which you might be familiar with, which is um, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Um, meaning that, you know, when you do things in a slow, consistent, deliberate manner, it becomes smooth. And by doing it in a smooth manner, it actually makes the case go a lot faster than it would otherwise go. Um, I could, couldn't agree more with that, that sentiment. Yeah. I love that statement. Although there's one, one caveat to that. And I tell the trainees this too, is, you know, if you're going to do big cases and particularly big oncology, what we do for a living at some point, somebody's life is going to depend on you, not only being good, but being good and fast. So Mm -hmm. slow, slow is relative and you can make your slow faster through good practice. And so I, I teach our trainees all the time. And I do this too, is practice being faster when it doesn't matter. Absolutely. Close skin more precisely and faster. Don't just sit there and take a break because it's the end of the day. Close your fascia more precisely and faster. And that way, when you're on the vena cava or the aorta or one of the pelvic vessels and there's a problem, you can going faster or pushing yourself is something you're used to. And it's easy, uh, not easy necessarily, but easier than if you've never done that before. Yeah. And I think that, that, um, that lesson can be applied anywhere in life. I, I, you know, when people tell me my, or you ask me my secret and, you know, getting things done quicker, it's that I, it's just that I pay attention to the small moments. We, we forget those. We actually don't pay attention to them at all. You know, closing fascia and skin and all of those things that are so rote in routine, that's where we make up the time. Um, but if you don't, and, and the same thing, you could say the same thing for um, calling patients after work or charting or, you know, anything, um, work or life. If you pay attention to those small moments, especially the ones that are routine, that's where you get most of your time back. That way you spend most of the, you know, the other time um, on those hard things. You can actually slow down and um, and use that time that you gained uh, in all the other aspects. A minute here and there, they 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 add up over the, day, the course of a day. Yeah. And, and since this podcast is focused on mindfulness, I mean, listen, we're talking about being present, right? Being in the moment, whether whatever mm-hmm. step of the case it is, whatever step portion of your day it is being fully present allows you to do that efficiently and quickly and move on to the next part of your day more efficiently mm-hmm. and, and more quickly. Yes. All right, let's transition out of the operating room. Let's talk about control kind of um inpatient encounters and in, in, in the clinic and just how you talk with people. Um and mm-hmm. you know we we mentioned a little bit or I don't know if we mentioned but I was at least thinking a little bit of of mm-hmm. analogies with illness uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, for our patients. So let's let's start thinking about how we interact in, in those circumstances. Yeah, so I think the, the first thing um, and perhaps the most important thing I want to say about this is that what we think about our patients, we bring that into the room with us. You can say that you don't, but you do. Um, if you're frustrated with a patient, you know, as professional as you might be, they're going to sense some of that frustration. It's impossible as a human to, to really hide that in, you know, in, in its entirety. And I remind that myself that quite a bit, um, you know, going back to this mantra of, of the fact that the only thing we have control is over ourselves and what we're thinking, what we do. Um, I, I think about that a lot with patients and I've experimented with it. And I would encourage anyone listening to do that, to really reflect on your experiences when you come in with an honest, authentic positive view of that patient and what happens when we have a negative view. Now it won't always, you know, 
it's not it's not to say that doing that will always create the exact you know situation you want because again we can't control other humans i wish we could sometimes of course just like everyone whether it be my children or <laughs> my patients um but we can't um but we can control what we bring into the room it creates like um it creates like an energy and i know that sounds woo woo but it's 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 very true and um i i I think back, uh, I don't remember all the specifics of this, but I, you know, sometimes you think of examples where once I experimented, I remember this one time that really changed my thinking about it. I was pre, I preach art, you know, and that's one of my, like my the things that at least helped me, help me with my efficiency in clinic and getting all my charts done before I leave every day. Um, but I was pre-charting and I hadn't seen this patient as a new patient. And, um, you know, with the pandemic, I'm seeing other kinds of diagnoses that I don't typically see. Um, you know, I, I have, I had some feelings about that, but, you know, I'm still going to, you know, I've, I've changed my thoughts. Like, I, I think there are things that I can, if I can help with it, I'm going to help with it, period. And that, that has helped me. Now I read through this patient chart and, um, uh, you know, you can read some things like you, it sounded like a challenging patient. Um, I read all of the notes from their primary care doctors, um, doctor shopping and, you know, and, um, Anyway, I, I, um, I definitely formed a negative view of that patient by reading all those charts. And I, um, uh, I have done that before. And I think we all have probably. And I, at that moment, I was experimenting. I was like, you know what? Um, maybe I need to change uh, what I think about this person. And I, um, I came into the room and I hadn't quite you know, gotten there, you know, in my mind, like thinking like, this is going to be a great patient encounter, but it was already in my mind. I was thinking about it and I still brought in some negative energy, but as I started um, talking, I was like, you know what, I'm going to just ask some interesting questions to me, you know, like, like things that I'm actually curious about, like truly curious about and see where, where it goes. And I'll tell you, it was like such a great encounter. That patient was nothing like the note set. It was just totally different. Um, I had switched very quickly into thinking like, and truly thinking like, this is a cool person. Like they've just had some, you know, really big challenges in their life and I can see why. And, and so I encourage like anytime I have a trainee in my, my um, clinic, I always encourage asking why to the patient, like, and, and being curious about it. Like, so there was like some things like they left AMA once I was like, I saw that you left, you left, um, you know, in the ER, what happened? And I, I say it just like that. I don't say it judgmentally. I'm just curious, like, what, what happened to you? Um, tell me a little bit about that. And uh, the stories I hear, I'm like, wow, that actually seemed like a reasonable thing. I may have done that too. Um, but coming at that, you know, that place of curiosity has helped me at least not all like put a label on that patient encounter before I, and then before I, I actually even meet them. And then when I'm in the room, it's just such a, you know, again, it comes back to our own experience. It's such a more pleasant experience for myself when I do it that way. So I would say if there was one thing I'd say, it's it's that is really checking what your thoughts are before you enter that patient room because you bring your energy, whether you like it or not. If you feel frustrated, they're going to sense that and then they're going to respond in a way that's probably going to fuel your frustration. So yeah. um, I don't know what you think about that. No, I think it's excellent. And um, we actually, we, We've now started kind of a professional development and wellness um, curriculum as part of our, you know, routine grand rounds. And one of the first things we're going over is uh, this a Washington Post article uh, that was published at the end of June. That's why I was, if you saw me going off screen, I was reaching into my recycling bin. Let's see if I can get it on screen here. Some, mm -hmm. I'll read it to you. There you go. Some doctors don't like some patients. Um, and <laughs> and it's phenomenal. And it's about the negative energy that happens in it. And um and one of the things I love about this article is it says how to help at the end of the article. And there's a whole section for healthcare workers, which is basically it goes over a lot of things you just said, which is actually really being mindful and present, doing the things you just talked about, being curious, giving people gracious excuses, being non-judgmental. And I think one of the really important things is just creating space, let people talk. That gives them back a sense of control. They can control a very uncomfortable environment for them or what could be an uncomfortable mm -hmm. one just by giving them the space to express themselves and tell you what they think is important. Mm -hmm. And then what I also love about this article is it, it, it tells patients how to interact and how not to interact um, <laughs> and uh, how not to be a difficult patient, um, which mm -hmm. can be, which can be challenging for some, <laughs> for some people too. But um, I, I wanted to bring up something else you say, you know, um, about setting the tone. 
And I think there's mm-hmm. two really important things about that. There is a whole science about intention and purpose that we talk a lot about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But I, one thing I don't think we have talked about yet, there's actually neuroscience behind this. We all have mirror neurons, right? Mm-hmm. These are literally hardwired into our neurology, into our brains to actually replicate and do what the people we're interacting with are doing. So mm-hmm. it, there's science here. If you bring negative energy into the room, negative energy is coming back out at you. If you bring positive energy into the room, if you're open and you're listening and you're creating space and being non-judgmental, you can expect the people across the room from you to smile, be non-judgmental, give space to you and bring it back. So there is actually neuroscience to support these behaviors and and to support the reasons why they actually do work. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, I, I truly believe you get what you give um, and, and in so many ways in life and, um, and certainly in the patient encounter. And I was thinking, you know, as you were speaking, um, some specifics that I've thought about over time, um, you know, what do I want to bring to the encounter and how, you know, again, what do I want to give um, and then get in, re- in return? I mean, again, I don't necessarily ask to get something in return. I, I just want the, a good experience for everyone. That's what we all want, of course. But um, I realized, you know, what I want to give is I want to give a sense that I care because I do care. Um, I can't control again, I can't control whether or not they feel that way, but I've experimented with certain things that I realize, you know, this provides that feeling to patients and, um, but, you know, you know, letting a patient talk that has a cost. It does. It has, the cost is time. We're busy. And I realized I was, I was having this pull push and pull, you know, I, I have a lot of patients to get through in a clinic as we all do but yet I want to hear them talk. And, um, and so I could think a couple things that came out of that is, um, and, 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 and this gets to back again, what do I have control over? Well, they're, they're the choices I make. And remember, we probably have more choices than we even think we do. Sometimes, you know, like how many patients I was seeing in a day at one point, it had become untenable. Um, and, could I do it? Yes, I, of course I could do it, but I was not creating the experience that I wanted because I was rushing patients. And I noticed that over time, I was like, it took me time to realize it. It's like, I'm rushing them. And I don't like that. I don't like that. And I would be apologizing a lot for rushing and all of that. And, um, and I, was, I thought, well, what if, you know, I just take two off the day. That's it. Just two, just two. <laughs> and just see how that felt. And you know, it was enough. It, it, it relieved it. And I, um, no one batted an eye. In fact, when I brought it up to our clinic director, he's like, well, we thought you were seeing too many patients, but we thought that's what you wanted to do. Like, again, it, I put it on myself. And we often do put it on ourselves. I mean, yes, there's predictability pressures, but remember that you still have control over that. Um, but the second piece is, is really the interaction with the patient. Because, you know, the first piece is like, what can I do within the constraints of administration and the, my clinic setup? The second piece is like, how can you improve that interaction with the patient, but not rush them, right? Well, I realized over time, um, uh, I, was, I was experimenting. I noticed one time a patient, it's just one time, and I, I was like, oh, hmm, that was interesting. I had said, and it was true, I prepped pr- my charts, right? I was like, yeah, I, I read that in your chart, um, you know, a couple days ago. And they were, they said, these pods are like, you were, you were reading my chart two days ago? Like, that's awesome. Like, that I've never, I've never heard of, you know, a, a doctor who did that or whatever, and probably doctors do it all the time, but it, it, it like planted a seed. I was like, that made them feel cared for. They, they felt that I cared enough that at a point where I'm not with them, I was spending time on them. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to experiment with saying that every time. Cause I do it. Why not say it? So, um, so I had that piece. I was like, okay, I'm going to experiment with that. The, the second thing is because I prepped the charts, um, you know, not all of our patients are storytellers, or perhaps they're very long-winded storytellers. I'm actually a long-winded storyteller, by the way, if you can't tell. But um, but in any case, <laughs> so I relate. Um, but I but you know, how many times do we we have like a story in front of us? We already know what we have read. Um, but we do need the like the the commentary, we need like the de- some of the details that are missing, or sometimes it's wrong, whatever. So I started experimenting with this thing, which which is now what I do all the time. We just come in and every time I always, I, you know, obviously introduce myself and, um, and they'd introduce themselves. But then I say, Hey, before we begin, 
I was, you know, I was reading your chart earlier this week because I wanted to come prepared. People always, and I didn't want to waste any of your time. I want to spend most of our time on like discussing the solution to the issue rather than all of the details. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to read you the story. And I always say story because people love stories. I'm going to read the story that I've read through all of your records. And you can, you're going to serve as my editor. I always say that you're going to serve as my editor and you're going to pause me. Anytime I say something wrong or I have a detail that I've missed anything, you just pause me and just write it in here. That way we can spend almost all the time in discussing what your goals are and discussing how we're going to achieve them. And oh my goodness, Phil, that saved me so much time. I love that method so much and patients love it. They, in my reviews, they always, not always, but like oftentimes they're going to, they comment on that piece of it, but it gets to the heart of the matter within like minutes. But then we start talk. I still have them talk, but I now have time for them to talk about their goals and like other things. And we don't waste the time, not to say there's wasted time, but that we, you know, there is some sort of wasted time when they're trying to like tell you a story. It's very complicated. And why should we expect them to be able to do that in a succinct way? So, you know, I took that into my own hands, but then incorporating them in that process has served me like tremendously well. And I'm happy about that experience. My patients seem to be happy and, you know, just finding ways like that, paying attention, experimenting, I think can get you to that point, but also reduce the amount of time that, you know, you're in that clinic visit. Yeah, I think those are excellent points. Uh, and I'll tell a, um, a similar, br- hopefully brief story. Um, <laughs> you know, we all get these kind of star ratings now, um, which I actually think are very uh, important um, and, and appropriate. And one of my, a few years ago, one of my lower scores was on um, knowing the patient's history. And I was like, that's absurd. I know their history, but I realized we never really talked about it because a lot of what we do, it may not be so pertinent. And so it evolved. It helped me recognize that, listen, I need to address this with patients because they think it's an issue. And so it made me focus a little bit on that. And it changed my opening kind of spiel. And I do the same thing you do, but I do it differently. I walk in and I say, all right, let me tell you what I know about you. I don't explicitly say I read your chart, but I think it comes true. And I start saying, you know, you're, you're so-and-so old, you had either, a, you know, a prostate cancer diagnosed because your PSA did this, or you had a kidney mass that was picked up because you had some belly pain or you were in a car accident. Your family history was this, your other medical issues are this. And I tell you, that's what I know about you. Tell me what I'm missing. And you see people go, oh, wow, this person actually knows who I am. And we can get right to the meat of it rather than asking, okay, tell me your medical history. Okay, tell me your surgical history. Did you ever have a cough or a sneeze? You know what I mean? You you get right yeah. into the meat of it. And, and it's just a different way to do it. Just for our listeners here, there are lots of ways to do this. Find what works with your style and it works for you. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really important is don't go in and try and get the whole history. It's there for, for the majority of our patients. Tell mm-hmm. them what you know about them. Let, impart to them that you've spent the time to prep for them. Um, and I think it makes a huge difference. The, the other, um, way to do that. And we see a lot of patients that follow up too, right? We're cancer Mm -hmm. surgeons and whether you're dealing with cancer, benign disease or whatever it may be, you're going to have a lot of follow-up patients and established care patients. And sometimes those follow-ups literally could take 30 seconds, right? If you think about the actual medicine that happens, it's 30 seconds of medicine. This test was negative. There's no evidence of cancer. I'll see in six months or I'll see you in a year. But I learned from John Gerhardt, who's a great uh, pediatric urologist at Hopkins, when it took 30 seconds, just sit there and ask about their family. Remember the things you you know about. What's going on with, with the rest of your family? What's going on with your children? I know you're a huge, you know, now that I'm in Philadelphia, you're a huge Eagles fan. What do you think about the Eagles game last week, right? There, it's an opportunity just to connect with them at a different level and show that you care. It costs you two minutes, five minutes, but it builds a tremendous connection with patients. And I think it's a really valuable little skill to help you kind of build rapport and longstanding relationships with your patients. Oh, I I could not agree more. Um, You know, for those who use Epic, um, there's like a yellow sticky note. I love the yellow sticky note. (laughs) I have, I always write in it because I, I realize, and you know, you're right. You know, it's, it's, it's great for the patient. I think they enjoy it, but oh my gosh, it's great for us. I mean, it's the humanity of medicine. I realized um, long ago, actually, that uh, what I love about my clinic is that I have returns. I love the returns. I love knowing deeply about people's lives and they know about mine too. I learned that, you know, when I was pregnant early on, like some, especially when I'm a, you're a cancer surgeon, 
they remember your kids' birthdays and how old they are based on when, you know, you were, you know, like, you know, doing a surgery when you're eight months pregnant or, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, and it, that's when it, where it seeded for me, where I realized, you know, it's a give and take, but it is a joy for me. Undoubtedly, I always make sure I have time for returns. Um, I, I know that I still have to have news. And so that there's a challenge there, right? But there's always a solution. I've, I've started to, you know, push those into virtual visits. You can do them much quicker in a shorter amount of time. And a lot of those virtual visits, we talk about exactly what you said about life. Um, I learned so much from patients. I have, it, I mean, honestly, my favorite parts of the day are those moments where I'm talking about family and I have just a minute to sit. And that is why I, when I told that story, I, I reduced that clinic load by just two patients because I didn't have time to do that anymore. And I realized very quickly that sucked the joy out of my day. And if you don't have joy in your day, then, okay, why are we doing this? Right. So I, I just could not agree more that, you know, taking that extra time is great for the patient, but it is great for you. That is an antidote for burnout, hands down, in my opinion. Yeah. It, it- Great point. And I think, you know, whether you treat cancer or benign disease, the whole reason we treat medical diseases is so that people can do the things they enjoy doing. So take joy in their joys, right? What brings them happiness? And then, and then honestly, ride the wave, ride the wave with them and enjoy their happiness. That that's, that gives us great joy and satisfaction. And a lot of reason we went into medicine. I want to get to some of the practicalities of, of clinic. Cause you talked about, you know, knocking two patients off your, your clinic schedule. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one way to do it. Now that I have um, a pretty significant administrative role, I work with a lot of my partners on how to streamline their clinic because there are people who struggle with this and this is not easy. Mm-hmm. So some of the ways we've worked on this um, to kind of help people's clinic experience get more efficient, it all comes down to honestly getting rid of patients, but you can uh, getting rid of the number of patients you see in a day and having more mm-hmm. high quality interactions. And it depends mm-hmm. on your practice, depends what you do. One of the ways to do it is get rid of a diagnosis, right? Um, limit a diagnosis or, or get rid of one that you might like, but it's just, it takes a ton of time or you're maybe one you don't like and see how that affects your practice. Revisit things in two or three months, see how that's influenced it. Depending on the data analysis and the data structure of your clinic and what your goals are, another way to do it is to look at surgical conversions, right? If you're really in a surgical practice, if there's a diagnosis that has a 10% conversion to surgery rate, that's probably a diagnosis you can delegate to either one of your non-operative colleagues or an APP who's kind of working up and managing patients. And while, yeah, we all wish we could see everybody every day, the idea is we, we want people operating at the top of their profession. And yeah. for most surgeons, they should be operating as much as possible. So that's another way to limit diagnoses. And then the last thing I wanted to mention and get your take on is the follow-up patients too, because we do love to see our follow-ups. It affirms what we mm-hmm. do, mm-hmm. but they also, when you get into a very busy practice, it can clog clinic for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I've employed now is we built out a formal survivorship program. And once again, I'm talking in cancer, but this applies to benign diseases and others. And and they tell my patients, listen, I'm going to see you once a year. In the mm-hmm. interim, you're going to see the survivorship nurses and nurse practitioners and PAs. Mm-hmm. They're going to handle your, your cancer work. They're going to keep me in the loop. If there's any issues, I'm never far. But just with the volume of the practice, you know, we can't see everybody at every single visit. And people are A-OK with that. You're still involved mm-hmm. in their care. You still get to see how they're doing on an annual basis. And I try and do it on the anniversary of surgery because it's just a nice reminder. Say, oh man, I remember where mm-hmm. we were last January. You know, this was so different and look how far we've come. And that that's one of the way I practically found to keep that interaction, keep that control over clinic, but not get overwhelmed in the volume. So lots of ways to do this. As you said, control and choices. There's lots out there, but he, there's some of them that I've come across. Yeah, Phil, you always have great ideas um, that I take away from our conversations. And that is definitely one of them. I, I don't do it that way. And but I love that idea. And I think I'm going to try it. Um, I I do, you know, this virtual, it's sort of like a survivorship care, you know, type clinic. Um, and I do it like the it's always the first Friday or generally speaking, the first Friday of the month. Um, I, I actually put on Fridays because it jumps. It makes me so happy. <laughs> it's like that. It's like, I, I call it my happy clinic because everybody, you know, has a cured cancer. We're just surveying for most, most of them. Right. You know, of course there's going to be a few that um, we have to have more difficult conversations, but in generally, I, in general, I know them all. And that's what I, that's what I call it the happy clinic. Cause I know their families. I know them. I, 
Um, but I like this concept of maybe once a year, because as your practice expands, uh, you have to pivot, you have to change. And that's, I think, what a lot of um, individuals, including myself, have forgotten is that, you know, it's not supposed to always be the same. You, you're, it's just, you're, you are, you know, yes, you're a living organism, but your, your clinic and your practice is living. It's constantly changing. You are, you know, you might change and start doing one type of operation. Maybe um, you are going to stop seeing a certain diagnosis. Um, you're building your practice, right? Like there's so many things that are constantly changing over time, but it's so small and it's so imperceptible. You forget. And you re don't realize you need to change along with it. You might have to alter your clinic a little bit. So that's why I have at least built in. Um, I actually do it once a month, but I do a much more in-depth review of everything, like how I'm feeling about things at least twice a year. And that's a time where you should be honest with yourself and say, you know, I'm not liking my clinic as much as I used to. Why? You know, again, so asking the patients, why? Ask yourself, why? Why? And like, really think about it. If you do and you practice this why question to yourself, you'll eventually figure out what it is and then just figure out what you need to change. Um, but if you don't build in time to actually reflect on it, again, these changes happen so such in small doses, you will never notice. You'll just become more unhappy. <laughs> so if you want to avoid being unhappy, then just build in a little time twice a year or maybe once a year even to reflect on what it is you're liking, what you don't like, and then change a little, uh, change it up a little bit. I'm going to, Phil, I'm totally going to try this survivorship um, plan here that you, yeah. you uh, suggested. Yeah. So um, we'll get to the control meetings in a second, because that's something I've learned from <laughs> you. And I, I do, I do those uh, at least twice a year now too. And I actually try to do them more often on a smaller scale, but um, mm -hmm. the survivorship and the follow-up thing really works. But the key to that is really engaging and giving control, since that's our theme for today, to our mm -hmm. APPs and our partners. And the mm -hmm. way to do that is engage them. So for we built the survivorship program and the algorithms with the APPs here. We are very clear with our patients that these are trained providers. They are our partners. They work with us and they are skilled and trained in your disease and your follow-up. And we are still involved in your care. And the reason we're not seeing you every single time is because we just can't. If we could, mm -hmm. if we absolutely had the ability to, we would see everybody every single minute of the day, but we would get nothing else done. And patients are actually incredibly receptive to that. And so that's just a quick plug to really, you know, work your, your APPs, your partners and engage them and, and build them in the process to give them control over it. And if you're not comfortable with the once a year thing, um, I have another partner, what we're working on is just doubling the interval. So instead of every three months, you see them every six months, but let somebody else see them in the interim. If it was a year, see them every two years, you know, whatever comfort level works for you, just basically work to expand that and it'll give you more opportunity in clinic to spend quality interactions with people. Absolutely agree. Yeah, we we have the same relationship with our APPs. We have just tremendous APPs um, here at UNC and so grateful for for them. And it's the expectation setting on the patient's um, part. And, and I, I will say like <laughs> patients love our APPs. Like, I mean, they, they completely agree. So it, I think you're right. Like remembering you have resources and also that is part of what our job is supposed to, is supposed to lift other people up, you know, and, and your trainees and your APPs, like you want to give them that opportunity too. You don't want to take it all for yourself. You know, it's again, that surgeon sense of control is that we can do it best. That's not true. That's not always true. Um, in fact, it's often not true. <laughs> um, so just remembering, you know, like, you know, let other people, you know, um, see your patients, let other people do other types of responsibilities. It doesn't always have to be you. And, um, and, and that in and of itself is something to practice over time. And it does like anything else, it gets easier. Um, yeah. the more you practice it. Yeah. And I think the great analogy here is right in front of us. It's, we, we mentioned this briefly before, but it's illness uncertainty with our patients. How many mm -hmm. patients come into us so worked up about their new diagnosis or whatever disease it may be. And at most half of what we do is in the operating room. A lot of it is just talking people off the ledge mm -hmm. and giving them a mm -hmm. plan. And you can literally see the anxiety come out of their face once a plan mm -hmm. is in the place. And, and I mean, listen, in cancer, I, I'd love to hear your philosophy on this, but mm -hmm. I mean, the more and more I treat cancer, sometimes I think the, the less and less impact we sometimes have on the disease trajectory. And that may reflect some of the mm -hmm. bad cancers that, that I deal with. But the, the biology is completely out of our control, but the plans mm -hmm. are not. And once we can reduce mm -hmm. that anxiety for the patient and their family and give them a plan, things, 
once again, that sense of control is restored in a time where you have no control over what's going on in your, in your own body. And I think that's the great analogy and thing to remember as we work through all of these interactions as surgeons. Yeah, I think you said it um, so well, is that, you know, what, what as humans, we really, <laughs> most of us dislike is uncertainty. And um, I think when, when you have a patient in front of you, and I've, I've asked, and so I, I, I speak from my own personal experience, but then I also speak from the experience of asking patients their experience. And it seems to me that the, oftentimes the hardest part in that, you know, cancer trajectory is the time of the diagnosis, but before the plans in place, because uncertainty is as at is highest, even for a localized prostate cancer, when you don't know, it's so scary, right? And then you meet with them and you say, oh, this is likely curable, you know, you, you, even with active surveillance, right? Like, especially with that, right? Um, you can go from feeling like you're going to die potentially from this cancer to being like, oh, I don't even need treatment here. Uh, but that uncertainty is, is often the hardest um, time for a patient in their, at least in their, because you know, I, 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 I like to ask, you know, I'm just kind of curious, like, after the fact, after they've been treated, and even it may be cured, what was the hardest point? And it's almost always, they almost always say that, that one piece of time where they had the diagnosis, but they don't yet have that plan. And we have a lot of control on, over ourselves of recognizing that anxiety, normalizing it. Everyone's feeling this way. I tell you, everyone feels like this sense and just saying it out loud, like it, it, it helps in and of itself, just recognizing that presence in the room, like that anxiety is, is the highest right now. And my job is to get that anxiety down as much as I can by coming up with a plan. And once we have that plan in place, most people start feeling better than they do right now. And I just say it out loud. Like I said, I, I'm a very, I share a lot, <laughs> probably too much, um, but I just say it right out loud. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't had a patient who said they didn't like it. So I, I try to pay attention to that. But I think that that um, recognizing that is, it can be therapeutic in and of itself. Yeah. And, and I think there's a couple, just a couple of other things we can do to reduce our patient's anxiety. Um, one is scheduling appointments quickly, right? Keeping yes. slots open. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, there's some good data about uh, retaining patients in a practice. And mm -hmm. initially it was 14 days, then it was 10 days. And probably the correct number is if you can't get a patient in within seven to 10 days, you're going to lose that patient to somebody who can. And not that's, mm -hmm. that's why we practice medicine or that's why we do surgery. But I think that speaks more to anxiety and illness uncertainty mm -hmm. than it does about quality of care. Patients want to be cared for quickly. That anxiety is so tough on people that if we can't mm -hmm. address their issues quickly, um, they're going to go elsewhere. And so to do that, you can create, there's a lots of names from acute urgent slots. You can keep slots open in your clinic that only fill within a week for patients who call in mm -hmm. with a new cancer diagnosis or whatever the diagnosis you may see. That's one way to address anxiety. The second thing is I tend to address the big question right up front, you know, before we get into, so I said, you know, said, all right, this is what I know about you. And let me tell you, you are not going to die of cancer. Or mm -hmm. this is really scary, but we've got a plan for you, right? Mm -hmm. And then and then get into the details. Just take the mm -hmm. air out of all of that anxiety. And because it, it almost like you're building a story and they're waiting for the punchline. Tell the punchline up front. We're not telling a yep. joke. We're not telling a story here. This is a medical plan. Give them the answer up front and then tell them everything they need to know to get to that answer. I think that reduces a lot of anxiety. And then the last thing I, I tell people all the time, if my patients are listening, they, they affirm this. I tell them, listen, I can't promise you things are going to go perfectly, but we are going to take good care of you. We know what we're doing. We do this often and we've got this plan in place and all the backup plans in the world if we need it. And that reduces a lot of anxiety for people too, or, or some message similar to that, that, they're, that you know what you're doing. You're going to give them good care. You can't promise things are going to be perfect. Um, I think those are all important messages too. Yeah, I, I um, I'll, I'll comment on. Two, I, I agree completely with everything you just said. I'm going to comment on two of the three points you just made. And the first is, um, you know, having some slots for new patients, getting new patients in soon. I, I agree with that. I will also say that you have to be careful because you are a one person and you will not be able to see every single patient um, in a timely way. You just will not be able to do it, and that's okay. That's okay. Because remember, you need to bring your best self. If you are overbooking your clinic and not giving the time you need and you can't even get them on the OR schedule, 
reflect on that. Maybe you shouldn't be seeing so many patients in your clinic. So just be careful. There's always a yin yang, like on these types of, um, you know, dilemmas where you want to get patients in as soon as you can. At the same time, you're only one person and you have a finite amount of time. So just be mindful of it. That's, that's all. Just pay attention. That's why there's, you know, semi-annual, annual meetings with yourself. So important. Um, the second thing that I wanted to um, mention is you were saying like voicing that, you know, fear, that anxiety right away. And I, I, I agree, you know, that that's important. Um, I was thinking I, that's, I also do that, not just with patients. I do the same thing um, for what it's worth, you know, what are you scared of? You know, and, and typically that's, you know, with cancer, that's what they're scared of. Am I going to die of this cancer? Not always though. Sometimes it's a functional issue, like erections. Like I am so, you know, this is so important to me, like everything, but I need to know that because I'm going to craft the entire conversation about, around it. So I talk Great about point. fears, fears and goals of care upfront, because then I'm not going to, I'm not saying again, wasting time, but I'm going to be able to very much hone my conversation, my discussions in a way that I don't have to revisit everything. Cause remember that like whole concept of like your hand on the door and then you find out what's really going on. Well, like you have control over that in many ways, not always, but in many ways by just, again, getting the punchline first and then using that to, to fuel the conversation. Um, but I'll, t- I'll tell you an example, another example where this is relevant, not just with patients. That's why everything we talk about is relevant everywhere in your life. If you pay attention and you figure out where you're going to apply it. Um, but whenever I'm on call with a trainee, especially if they're in like a new chief or a new, you know, the first thing I do, I always talk with them, sort of like the OR concept, you know, before the OR starts, I'm going to go in, talk to them. I do the same thing before we start call, I call them and, um, and, and I set my expectations. Like, you know, i like to be called, um, you know, don't text me at, you know, after 9 PM, I'm an early I go to bed early. I love sleep. Um, that can be a whole nother podcast, but, um, But anyway, like, you know, don't text me. I'm not going to wake up to it. Make sure you call me. Like just things that they'll need to know. So we have a really good week. But what I always end with, the question I always ask is, what are you afraid of this week? What is your worst fear? You know, and um, it's really, it's so helpful to voice it out loud because then we go through it. Um, I was talking to a a trainee and and I was like, what what are you afraid of? What's your worst fear this week? And their worst fear was um, a trauma nephrectomy needs to happen. And they're like, and I just don't know if I have the experience to do it. And I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's go through it. Okay. What would happen if that happened? You know, and here's what we would do. And, and oftentimes you don't even need to do tra- trauma nephrectomy, right? Like you, nowadays, like you can, you can observe these and embolize and all this, but, but if, if really you are there, like who else is going to be there? Well, there's going to be a trauma surgeon. So if you feel like we need an extra hand, they're there too. We can ask them. We'll have blood in the room. We'll have this and that. Like it, it, it starts to dissipate, right? Like the fear, you're like, actually, you know, I got this. We got this. We're a team. And and then you're just, it's gone. And the, the funniest thing is this exact story. Guess what came in? A trauma nephrectomy. But it was so great because it was like, he was, we were all laughing because we were like, oh my gosh, can you believe it? We just don't get a lot of traumas at UNC, just, you know, virtue of like the, you know, who comes through the, the um, trauma bay. But but, you know, but it was just kind of a, a, a funny situation. But my point of say, asking that question is it, again, it's, you know, the antidote to fear is like, you, you actually, you know, it's just like shame and vulnerability and all that. You have to say it out loud and it loses its power after you do that because you do have a plan. And once you have that plan in place, it gives you a sense of control. You never will have control, but you certainly will feel better in your experience of it. So that's, um, that's one way I, I translate that patient experience, how I, address that with like trainees. And then, you know, I can also say examples other way, you know, other places in my life, but uh, remember that all of these lessons are applicable in many ways. Yeah. The great, great, great story. I just want to make one comment, one exercise I do with junior faculty. And once again, this is going to be an oncology example because it's what I know, but you can see how this is applicable to a lot of things, but you people will want to see every diagnosis they can, you know, you know what I mean? Or every patient with a diagnosis they really care of. And the one example I always give is testis cancer. 9,000 guys, men per year d- diagnosed in this country with testicular cancer. And it may be true that you see that you do better at testis cancer than anybody else in the country. I tell you, given you may be the best testis cancer doctor in the, in the world. If you want to see all 9,000 of those men, that's 25 patients a day around the clock, including weekends. That's just in clinic. Then you've got to operate on them. Then you've got to figure everything else out. It is impossible. And that is the that is the most rare disease that we take care of. 
right? The numbers just scale up. You can't take care of everybody. You have to trust others. And so Mm -hmm. once again, relinquish that sense of control that you need to control every patient with the disease, control the patients that you can take care of and do a really good job for the people in your sphere. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So coming up on an hour, Angie, I want to give uh, you the opportunity to steer this direct this conversation in any direction you want. I don't know if you want to talk about control in, in your personal life or you want to talk about uh, meetings, what, whatever makes sense to you as we kind of wrap up here. Yeah, I think I'll say uh, I'll just speak to my own sense of control and how I try to create that in my life. Um, and, it, and I don't say it to give examples, although, you know, if you people want to take away what I do, that's fine. But I really say it more as a high level, like of, of understanding yourself. What makes you feel good at the end of the day? Um, there are some people who are okay not planning things, and and that and they actually feel better about doing it that way. And that is fine. Know yourself, and then you know do that. I know I just feel better when I have things in order. Like I, you know, I I know what's coming up the next day. You know, people who know me and that's a whole nother conversation that we won't go into. I like bullet journaling. I like, you know, having a schedule for the next day, understanding what I'm going to do. It's in a, you know, in an essence, like maybe three or four things. Um, it just helps me be more productive the next day. It also reduces a lot of my own anxiety. Because again, what makes you anxious? Well, then fix that. You can, you do have the control to fix yourself. And that's what I focus on. So I'm not telling everyone to bullet journal. I'm not telling everyone to plan their next day. But for me, I, I think, you know, having a sense of what's going to reduce my anxiety, figure that what that, that is for you. Maybe it's those things, maybe it's something else. And then do those things or at least experimenting with, experiment with them, see how that changes your feelings of control. Because again, we don't have it. We can feel it. And if that feeling reduces your anxiety, it's what you're going for. Um, so I would just say uh, my, my takeaway take is that it's what I started with, which is most people like the sense of control. We do not have it, unfortunately. And the more you can understand that, the better, um, because it's setting up an improper expectation for yourself. But what you do have control over is yourself, what you're thinking, how you're feeling, it comes from your thoughts, and then what you do about it. And if you can harness that, you, your experience is going to be tremendously better. Why? Because of like mirror neurons, right? Like you feeling good, other people can feel good too. All these things that we talked about throughout the course of this hour. So focusing on yourself is probably the best investment you can ever make in creating this control. We're going to just call the word control in your life. And that feeling, that, that, that good experience we're all going for, whether it's in the OR or in a clinic or at, at our home with our friends, wherever that is, it's all about paying attention and then making small changes and adjusting to um, create a better experience for yourself. And then everything else comes from it. <laughs> yeah. I love what you said. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with it. Um, I'll just quickly summarize here and, and then we can sign off and, and look forward to doing this again. But I'm going to start the summary with what you just finished with, which is knowing yourself, right? And, and you can only impart control if you know where you want to be and what you want to control, like what, what's your end goal? What's your, what's your um, end game there? And um, I'm going to try not to get too Buddhist in our, uh, in our summary here, but I'll tell you a lot of the things we talked about, about control, about lack of control, about inevitable change, about imparting our feelings onto the way things act is very Buddhist in philosophy um, and very Eastern in, in thought. And if anybody wants to, to read into those things or think about them, it's a great opportunity to kind of go down that realm. Um, I, I've become uh, unintentionally, but now intentionally very Buddhist in my thinking about these processes and about how we interact with them. And I think it's an incredibly helpful uh, on a day-to-day basis. But we talked about we talked about choice and we talked about control in a lot of circumstances. We talked about the operating room, talked about clinic. We talked about imparting control with our APPs and our trainees and call and all of these things that impact our, our surgical career and our surgical existence. And there were themes throughout them that I'm just going to kind of highlight. Slowing down rather than accelerating, increasing communication, staying positive, interacting with an intention and often a a positive intention when you're not feeling positive, reframe to kind of that positive energy, those positive thoughts, 
talked about being curious, giving people gracious excuses, non-judgmental in the way we interact with each other, particularly with patients and the tough things that they may be going through. And then lastly, lowering anxieties, whether it's our own anxieties, whether it's our patients' anxieties, whether it's our colleagues' anxieties, naming the issues, naming those fears or whatever it may be can actually reduce a lot of the anxieties, impart that sense of control and make our days and our lives and our existence as surgeons and humans, I think much more tolerable and, and fun, which is why we're all doing this, right? We're supposed to have fun. Absolutely. I think that was a perfect summary. And um, I hope that the listeners um, will get something from it. I, I feel so strongly about this topic because it brings me the greatest joy in my life. Um, it gives me that experience I'm looking for. And um, I hope that the listeners can um, take something away to improve their own lives as well. Well, wonderful. I, I know people are going to benefit from this conversation. So thank you so much for having it with me. And I look forward to seeing you again in person sometime soon, Angie. All right. Thanks, Phil. Always a pleasure.